Happy New Year, DSR listeners! This year, we're adding even more content and benefits for members, including a new weekly column written by David Rothkoff, more exclusive content, new shows and hosts, and soon, a new membership option that will include a mix of live and virtual events and interactive discussions. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, a members-only newsletter, and members-only blog posts. Membership is just $5 per month or $50 per year. To become a member, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. Thank you and Happy New Year. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to our podcast. This week, we are fortunate enough to have a conversation with one of our great friends, the Asia-Pacific editor of the Washington Post, Anna Fifield, who is coming to us live-ish from New Zealand. Kia ora, David. Kia ora is how we say it down here. How do you, what is that? Kia ora. Hello. That's nice. We'll be joined momentarily also by Rosa Brooks. So I, I think we have to start with the fate of your prime minister. When you were in Washington just two weeks ago, I said, oh boy, Jacinda Ardern's great. And you said, yeah, but nobody here much cares for her. And I was like, what? How could this possibly be? Then, literally hours later, because you're psychic or something, she says, I'm not running anymore. Maybe maybe she got word of your your opinion. And uh, she kind of shocked the world. Presumably, you were not shocked. But uh, can you explain a little bit the, the why somebody who is so widely admired around the planet felt that whatever the domestic political environment was, it warranted her uh, taking a break? I was not shocked at all. In fact, I was kind of surprised that she'd hung in there as long as she had, because while she has been like hailed around the world as this progressive liberal icon, and you know she got this rat dress welcome. At Harvard last year, when she gave the commencement speech, she has been seen as this kind of global antidote to Trump and Trumpism and all the populist right-wing leaders out there. In New Zealand, we're pretty tough customers, as we like to say, and that there's been a lot of dissatisfaction with her, I think basically because familiarity breeds contempt. She has been in office for five and a half years, and she has been very, very present in public there. She has been doing the COVID briefings every day during the height of the pandemic, and she has really been the face of the government. And, you know, in New Zealand, um, people don't look at the fact that we have kind of the lowest death rate in the developed world by far um, from the COVID pandemic, or that our economy has held up relatively well, and inflation is not as high as it is in some other developed countries. 
there has just been this kind of vein of resentment towards Jacinda Ardern and her government for shutting out tourists and other um, you know people for so long, and um, obviously the impact that that had on the economy. So. I think that that's a big part of it. But the part that I think comes as a big surprise to so many Americans is this poisonous level of hatred and misogyny that has welled up in New Zealand, inspired by a lot of what's been going on elsewhere in the world. But um, the kind of denigration of her as a young woman, a mother, unmarried, you know, all these things that make her a progressive icon have been a lightning rod for some of the, you know, right-wing anti-vaxxers in New Zealand. And so this is why I say I'm not surprised and that I am surprised that she hung in there for so long because she has had really credible rape threats, murder threats, constant attacks against her and in the Telegram channels against her daughter, her four-year-old daughter, you know, people threatening to kill Neve because she might turn out like her mother. And so this is really just um, unbearable, I would say. And though, even though she didn't say this is the reason why she resigned now, I mean, it, it has to have been a factor. <laughs> her daughter will go to school this year. And I think that she's probably thinking, well, what are my priorities here? So I think a lot of people in New Zealand have hailed her for doing things according to her own priorities and needs. And, you know, she had this very distinctive, leadership style over the past five and a half years. She did things her own way and she's bowing out in her own way as well and now prioritizing her family and, and her life. I, I see our friend Rosa has joined us from the dentist. How do you feel, Rosa? Good? My jaw hurts, David. I feel very sorry <laughs> for myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, fair. I'm very sorry. Surely you are not surprised as Anna suggested Americans might be by this sort of burden of misogyny that uh, Jacinda Ardern found herself beneath? I am, actually. I mean, every single time I'm surprised all over again by how awful it is. You know, every single time you think, oh, come on. You know, people aren't that disgusting and creepy and nasty and evil. And every single time I think, well, I guess they are. It is, you know, it is sort of shocking. It is shocking that in, you know, 2022, 2023, in a so-called advanced progressive country, that that level of, of just vitriol uh, and rage is expressed just because she's a woman. Yeah. And didn't, I, I don't know if I was talking to you about it the other day, but wasn't there recently an article post Jacinda Ardern that was kind of like, well, this proves a woman can't have it all. Yes, that was a BBC uh, BBC headline on her resignation. Was and I just thought, yeah, screw you. <laughs> I, mean, uh, I mean, it's just astonishing the level of both vicious and deliberately nasty misogyny, and and the level of sort of sub level, quiet, unacknowledged misogyny that that persists. Are you? surprised, Anna, by the world reaction to all of this? No, not at all, because I think she's always been lauded overseas. And I mean, I've been surprised she doesn't spend more time overseas where people do give her credit for her various achievements. So no, she's obviously um, found like-minded fellow leaders in Canada. President Obama posted on uh, Instagram a very nice message to her. She's got lots of support in Europe. So, so no, I wasn't. And also, you know, 
I felt prey to this myself when I came home and I thought New Zealand was this utopia where nothing went wrong. So I think it is, uh, I've discovered it's not quite true, though there are still many good things. But I think that, yeah, it's easy to look at New Zealand as this kind of uh, progressive utopia when when we have people like Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping and Viktor Orban and the rest of them around the world. No doubt. Is there, is there going to be a big change in the political direction of New Zealand following her departure? Uh, yes, all of the polls are pointing to this. I mean, it's unusual to go three terms with the same party, let alone two. Uh, so two here, it seems to be the limit at the moment because it has been such a huge five years, six years that the Labour Party has been in power. Not only was there, there was the big terrorist attack in uh, Christchurch that happened where more than 50 people were killed. There was a huge eruption, volcanic eruption, where a lot of people died a grisly, grisly death. And then the pandemic. So there's been a lot that's happened during Jacinda Ardern's term. And she obviously hasn't been able to make progress on some of the other promises she made, like reducing child poverty and the housing crisis and things. So all the polls are pointing to a change to a conservative government anyway. So in some ways, it might be seen as tactical that she's bowed out now and given her successor, Chris Hipkins, colloquially known here as Chippy, a chance to turn the ship around and, um, <laughs> and um, win the election in October. David, why aren't you called Chippy? I don't know. Probably because I'm not in New Zealand. You know, everything's kind of adorable in New Zealand. You know, everything's Especially kind of animal. perky. Except the misogyny. <laughs> Which well, there's misogyny, <laughs> but but that's not covered in the, you know, Anna ran the like biggest website in New Zealand. And as far as I could tell, most of the stories were like about seals that crawled into people's houses <laughs> and lived with them, aren't they? That story did so well. Seal on the couch, waiting for a follow-up. <laughs> uh, yeah, for our listeners, just Google seal on a couch. You'll find a g- great, great deal about that. You are now sitting in New Zealand, looking at the rest of Asia and the Pacific region on behalf of, of the Washington Post. And I, and I thought it would be a good chance for, perhaps Rosa has some questions, I have some questions, to sort of look at what your expectations are as you sort of look at the first year of, of doing that. I mean, you've got uh, Tony Blinken going to China in a couple of weeks. Seems to me like that's a leading headline. You've got a kind of rest of Kim Jong-un, who uh, you have written a great book about. Are those the items at the top of your hit parade at the moment? Yeah, I mean, the big, big question for everyone, I think, is what is happening inside China? And that obviously Xi Jinping over the past five years has steadily tightened control. Last October, he effectively made himself president for life. So we have seen this increase in his control over this country of 1.4 billion people and the lack of space for freedom of expression and assembly and religion and all those other things we hold so dear. But the question really this year is how that plays out. Does Xi Jinping feel very strong now that he has got this mandate from the party to carry on? Or is he weakened by the fact that, I mean, three years they did nothing to prepare for the coronavirus outbreak, which was inevitably going to happen. So it's uh, still the learning new year in China right now, the biggest migration of humans in the world every year. And so we are really waiting to see just how this COVID wave that has been unleashed in December plays out, especially in the rural areas where medical facilities are very scarce and where, you know, where the old people live. So the death 
toll from this wave of COVID could be really high. So we're just waiting to see how that plays out and what that means for his leadership and his legitimacy. But the huge problem with China is that there are very few foreign correspondents who still remain in China. And for those that are there, it's part of the reason I left in 2020, it's extremely hard to do the kind of reporting that foreign correspondents have traditionally done to get out into the villages, to get ordinary people to talk to you. They're afraid of foreign media now. So the kind of information we're getting from China, official sources and, and unofficial, is woefully insufficient. Rosa, do you have questions here for Anna? Yeah, I do, actually. And I, I, I'm also curious, well, two questions. One is, continuing on the COVID, uh, I see that North Korea has just announced a, a lockdown owing to an unnamed, unspecified respiratory illness, which, of course, wouldn't be COVID or anything like that. But And I'm, I'm curious... What's, do you have a sense of what's going on there and whether this is likely to have any particular impact on the political climate in North Korea? But then, then I think my, my broader question, moving away from COVID, is, is really about the, the impact of the war in Ukraine on relations within Asia, particularly, for instance, relations between China and North Korea. Has the war in Ukraine shifted the balance of power at all? Has it, is it helping North Korea? Does it not make a difference? I mean, I'm sort of wondering, as, as Russia has obviously been pushed into a much more isolated position, which in turn has meant that Russia is clinging tighter to the extent that it possibly can to China, to North Korea, to anybody who will still be their friend. But has that also had an impact on uh, relationships, for instance, between China and North Korea? Yeah. Um, well, Kim Jong-un declared last year that they had won the war against COVID, so he can't very well come out and say now that it's raging again, can he? You know, I talked before about the difficulties in knowing what's going on in China. Uh, we still know way more about China than we do about North Korea. I've been covering North Korea since 2004, and I have never experienced a period like this where we just have no idea what is going on in there. In 2020, even before Wuhan shut down, North Korea closed the borders completely, even to Chinese trade, which had been their lifeline, and they haven't opened them up again since. So there are, I think, no foreign diplomats, maybe there's some Chinese diplomats, but they're not very chatty, left in North Korea. There are no aid workers going back and forth. There are no North Korean traders crossing the border for the day. There's been this huge black hole opened up, even for the Hermit Kingdom. And so we really just have no idea what is going on in there. The only clues we have is from what they tell us in the state media and from what the satellites can see. And while satellites are very good at seeing huge missile launches moving around the country, they don't tell us about the state of people's lungs and things like that. So, so we really have very, very little idea what's going on in there. But the fact that these Omicron variants are circulating so widely in China, which is a very long border with North Korea, makes it it's reasonable to think that it has crossed the border and is now spreading in North Korea. You know, North Korea has no healthcare system to speak of. You know, doctors don't have uh, ibuprofen or, uh, you know, fever medicines like that. So if it breaks out in North Korea, it would be really devastating, I think. So much more so than in China. So Again, we're just waiting to look at that and see how, you know, how this spreads and what we can tell from it. In terms of the war in Ukraine and when it comes to North Korea, I think North Korea has been so focused on its 
the health situation internally on staying alive. It doesn't have this trade with China propping it up so much anymore. And Kim Jong-un has obviously been trying to keep a grip on the country still and has been really focused on his nuclear weapons program. At the beginning of this year, he announced you know, that we're going to exponentially increase their nuclear arsenal this year, including developing tactical nuclear weapons. And so I think that, I mean, this is all aimed at the United States and South Korea. So I think that has really been their focus much more so than, than Ukraine and, and the ripple effects from that. I think where that has been felt in Asia is obviously in China, which has lent them of support to Russia over the war in Ukraine and has seen these divisions opening up with Europe and worsening with the United States. And the question now is how does Xi Jinping navigate his way out of that? Because I do think he is facing so much stress domestically. He has this COVID wave. The economy is in extremely bad shape. And the compact of the Chinese Communist Party has always been you can have economic growth, but you're not going to have political freedom. What happens when there's no economic growth? So I think he has been very focused on that. And part of the Blinken visit that's happening in a couple of weeks, and Olaf Schultz went to the end of last year. President Macron is going soon to Beijing as part of an effort by Xi Jinping to at least kind of lower the temperature with uh, with Europe and the US so that he can deal with some of these stresses at home. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about that because I've seen a couple of pieces in the past few days saying there's a marked change in the tone of the Chinese. They pulled back the wolf warriors. They're reaching out a little bit. It's, you know, nobody's saying the leopard has changed their spots entirely, but they say that they are dialing it back and you are tying that to the stresses within China. Do you think that China's economic stresses and political stresses are at a, at a critical stage? I don't think the political stresses are yet. I think the economic stresses definitely are, and the fact that we've seen the growth rate fall to you know basically nothing flat that there have been so many leading Chinese businesses that have, and business people who have moved abroad and taken their money with them that impact on Hong Kong of the um, loss of freedoms there and what that's meant for the corporate sector in Hong Kong. I think all of this is really taking its toll. And this must, I think, is the reason why Xi Jinping suddenly you know, dropped all of the COVID restrictions last year and has taken these other, made these other moves I think it's because of the economy. That is his single biggest worry right now, more so than the COVID death toll, I would say, is trying to revive the economy because of the potential political knock-on effects and that, that this may break the bargain with the people. I mean, having said that, I don't hold out much hope that protest or dissent would be able to bubble up again in China. We, look, we saw that they put down those protests last month very, very quickly and easily. So I mean, the big question for me is what brings about change in China? And I don't know the answer. I don't see anything that can bring about change because he does have the system tightened up so much. One of the things that strikes me in listening to Anna is we have a blind spot with regard to North Korea because the lack of information. Similarly, with regard to China, lack of journalists and others about government crackdown on this. Chinese students still come here. Our students don't really go there. The knowledge, you know, that if you went to people in the U.S. government and said, what's the biggest international challenge? They'd all say China. 
or what is on the top, you know, five risks in the world. They might add North Korea to that. But but it seems like this we're we're operating in the dark a little bit more than we have been in other areas at the moment. I I, I don't know if you agree with that, Rose. I'm just wondering at first. Do you I see that as is, a? As, we're always as, operating in the dark. <laughs> this is the nature of foreign affairs, right? But yeah, I I don't know. I I don't know if we're operating more in the dark, but. It does seem to me that for some of the reasons that Anna was speaking about just a few minutes ago, it's very hard to know what's going on. It's harder than usual, maybe, to know what's going on. I see that we have uh, John Bolton, um, everybody's favorite former UN UN ambassador, uh, has an op-ed, I think it's in today's Washington Post, or at least I, I saw it today, arguing that when Tony Blinken goes to Beijing, that he really needs to be pushing China to do something about North Korea and he, you know, the usual usual ranting, but obviously, you know, there, there's there's a point in there, which is that China, to the extent that anybody has any sway with the North Koreans, it's China has more sway than anybody else. And China has both carrots and sticks that are pretty ineffective, what the rest of the world just doesn't have, or at any rate, we've, we've tried every stick and doesn't really seem to be making much difference short of going to war, which we don't want to do, although maybe John Bolton would be okay with it. And I wonder, Anna, if, if you do you think, given the current political moment, do you think that China's sway over North Korea has increased, decreased? Do you, do you think that there is any reduced willingness to confront North Korea and push North Korea right now? I mean, is there any point in Tony Blinken pressing them on this right now or is nothing going to change? I mean, obviously, North Korea to the extent that it has an economy, increasingly its economy seems to be fueled by, you know, massive cyber attacks in which multiple million, hundreds of millions of dollars at a time are, are stolen from, you know, cryptocurrency exchanges and so forth, which is sort of fascinating, right? Because it, it, it suggests that that's a form of, that's a way to bolster your economy that does not actually depend on having large numbers of people, having any exportable or valuable product. It just is essentially, you know, it's a theft-based economy increasingly that is propping up the regime, which in turn suggests that it may be less susceptible to the various kinds of other carrots and sticks that we would normally think of as, as having some impact on a country. And as you're planning your multi-piece series on this. Sorry, I a lot of questions this. packed into one. <laughs> no, but I kind of like where, where Rose is going with this, because this kind of suggests, you know, that you could sort of see North Korea as a new type of crypto pirate state. That's kind of how pirates used to work, you know. Yes. And, the, and it makes me wonder why we're not all making off like bandits and stealing hundreds of millions at a time. Obviously, we lack the technical skills, but clearly we should gain them. Yeah. I mean, this has been a really fruitful source of money for North Korea. They stole $81 million from the Central Bank of Bangladesh and nobody can get it back, kind of thing, you know. So I think the world is kind of tightening up and wising up a bit to that this is now North Korea's kind of main export industry. Um, so that's going to get increasingly hard for them. But on the on the question of the reliance on China and China's leverage over them, you know, ninety percent of North Korea's trade has gone to or through China for years. I mean, the remainder has mainly gone through Russia. So that's kind of, I guess, increased slightly, but it was already so high that it doesn't make much difference there. I think the thing that has really changed is China's willingness to use that leverage. They've never been particularly willing to do that, even though they may have offered lip service to it during the six-party talks era. But basically, since the Trump administration launched the trade war, that any remaining desire to help whatsoever when it comes to North Korea has been completely sapped. 
and that has continued through the Biden administration too. So I think there's very little willingness in Beijing to do anything that sort of helped the Americans in any way. They have continued, I think, to turn the screws a little on Kim Jong-un to make sure that he didn't do anything uh, spectacular during the party congress in October last year. So they can act for their own reasons, but I don't see a sudden um, willingness to act on behalf of the Americans. But in terms of the broader picture and to allude to what you said before about whether the leopard contagion spots, I think that, I mean, we don't know. I think probably that this is just very superficial at the moment. We have seen this new national security team in Beijing that does seem to be a little more conciliatory. Chen Gang, the ambassador in uh, Washington, is back there. I see still appearing by a video at Washington, D.C. basketball games. And so he, one of his first acts was to sideline the biggest wolf warrior out there, Zhao Lijian, to kind of diplomatic Siberia. But whether this is more than window dressing remains to be seen. I think probably at the moment they are trying to make nice and they will be looking for some improvements or some, you know, be ready to be doing some bargaining during Blinken's visit in a couple of weeks' time. But in terms of the overall trajectory of China's goals to be this geopolitical superpower, to spread its influence throughout the global south and the developing world and anywhere else it can, I think that big strategy uh, has not changed. Xi Jinping wants to return China to its rightful place and leading the world order and that remains undented. So, well, you know, this is where we normally take a break. Before we take the break, I do want to point out, you probably can expect to see more Chin Gong at basketball games. He was very proud of the fact that he went and they gave him the basketball and he took a couple of foul shots and he made them all. And uh, the last time I actually saw him- I'd like to see John Bolton do that, he said. Yeah, exactly. But he took out his phone and he was like, look, look at this. He showed me the video of him making the foul shots. So I think that was a big thing. In any event, this is the point in the podcast where we take a break and we say thanks to everybody for listening, the general public. And we say, if you want to listen to the rest of the podcast and all of all of our podcasts, you got to be a member. And the way to do that is to go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. And for like $5 a month, which is, you know, what people are paying for some Pretty subpar substacks, I would say, or just a cup of coffee. Now, now, I didn't mean anybody in particular. You know, you get lots and lots of great content. So go to the dsrnetwork.com if you're not a member, become a member. We'll be incredibly grateful and there'll be a lot of great benefits to you. For uh, those of you who are leaving, bye bye. For those of you who are members, we'll be right back. 